0: Our epistle lesson this morning is found in First Thessalonians, we're chapter 5. We'll be reading verses 1 through 11. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security... Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober." Having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. And Father, we give thanks as we gather around your word this morning, and we ask that the great message of the gospel, the announcement that you are for us in Jesus Christ, would come and bring comfort, and that it would give shape to our lives as we seek to follow after you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's in the fall of 1999 that I had a life-changing phone conversation with my dad. At that time, I was serving in college ministry. I was engaged to a young woman named Melissa Thames, and I was contemplating my future. That fall, it had become clear that God was directing me towards pastoral ministry, which required seminary training. And so I shared this sense of call with my dad over the phone that day. And then he spoke some unforgettable words to me. This is what he said. He said, son, I'm proud of you. And son, I'm fully behind you. These words, as simple as they may sound to you, changed my life that day. My dad was telling me that I am for you, that I am with you. They were good, life-giving words. Changed everything. Now, this was especially the case, not due to any deficiency in my father. He was a great dad. But there were struggles that I personally had in receiving his affirmation and approval. You see, in Greenville, North Carolina, my dad, Butch Colson, was a well-known football player. He was the Southern Conference Player of the Year in 1967. He had set multiple records at East Carolina University where he played fullback in the single wing. And growing up, there was a liturgical phrase that I grew up with. When I would introduce myself as Chuck Colson people would ask, is your father Butch Coulson? And I would say yes, and they would say this line, he was good for five yards, anytime. (laughs) Just a year ago, I was at a Publix, a random Publix in Bartram, I'm not normally there, but just down the road here, and there was a man in front of me in line, and he was wearing an East Carolina sweatshirt. And so I asked him, I said, are you from Eastern North Carolina? He said, yes, I live in Aden. And so we talked the, uh, the local stuff there for a while. And he said, what's your name? And I said, my name is Chuck Colson." And he said, is your father Butch Colson?" I said, well, yes, he is. He is good for five yards any time. <laughs> I could have finished the sentence. And here I was, Butch Colson's relatively intellectual, non-football-playing son. At 16 years old, I was 5'7", all of 130 pounds. I was not an impressive football specimen. And that created certain impacts in me. Was my dad proud of me? Did I have his approval? And so that day when my dad said, son, I am with you and I'm proud of you. And then he went on to add that I think you're doing the most important thing that anyone could possibly do. Those words were emblazoned on my heart that day. They affirmed me in a way that almost nothing else could. It was that important. His words strengthened me. They emboldened me. And what they strengthened me and emboldened me to do was something that I'd already committed myself to do. And if we're honest with ourselves, this is one of the greatest needs that we have in the Christian life. It's to be strengthened and affirmed. But this need for strengthening and affirmation doesn't primarily come through a relational bond with another person. No, our greatest need is to be strengthened and affirmed by the word of God itself, by God's very speech, by his very presence, to hear and know that God himself is for us. That if relational words from a father can change our direction and course in life and our sense of affirmation, then certainly this only points to the far greater extent that God's personal word to you, that he is for you. That that word can change everything. And during the season of Advent, we're going to explore this very simple question. How exactly is God for us? We'll look at passages from around the New Testament. Today we find ourselves in Thessalonians. And we have three different angles to consider from this passage about how precisely, how exactly God is for us in Jesus Christ. And so we're particularly focused on verses 9 through 11 this morning. If you have your Bible, please focus there in chapter 5. But the first angle that we'll consider is that God is for us in the determination of our salvation. Follow with me in verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the wonderful statement of the grace of God that reaches back into eternity past, prior to the foundations of the world being laid, that God determined you. Despite all of your failures that were known to him, despite all of your unfaithfulness, despite all of your sin that was known to him, God determined that you belong to him. He determined that Christ was to be the sacrifice for your sin. In his eternal plan, he came up with this, and he set you apart. He singled you out to be his own. This is what Paul explains here, that he's not destined us for the wrath that we deserved, but rather to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ. Now for many people, when they hear of this determination, or we could say the word predestination or election. It's profoundly discomforting because it raises many questions that they find irresolvable and they don't know how to answer. And many people say, well, I'm not a Presbyterian because I can't believe in that divine determination. Well, friends, I am a Presbyterian and I do believe in it, but I can also confess to you that I don't understand it. But that's not my job either. Rather, what we do when we come to Scripture and when we read about the eternal counsels of God that set us apart for himself, that those who believe in Jesus have been set apart for this, what our job is is to affirm what Scripture does reveal, what God has said to us about that eternal counsel. Because as far as I know, none of us were there. Correct? None of us were there. And so what we know is the little bit of slice and the little sliver that God does give to us, what he does explain about what was in his heart and mind. And friends, that's what our job is, is to affirm that. And we affirm that Scripture says that all are responsible to believe in Jesus for salvation. And we affirm that Scripture teaches that none of us will do so. That we don't have a physical incapacity to believe, but we have a moral incapacity. That we're too locked up and lost in our own sins, but that God has freed some to believe. Paul explains this in chapter 1 of this same letter. If you follow with me in verse 4, he says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And so those who were chosen, those who were elect, those who were destined are those who receive the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. And their hearts are opened and awakened and they believe and trust in Jesus. And friends, we are talking about a great and high mystery And rather than search in and ask the questions of why God, rather I believe the fundamental posture in which we approach these truths is to bow ourselves before a grace and a mercy that is simply incomprehensible in the sliver of knowledge that we have about God's eternal counsel and to give thanks that a divine determination is yours and to hear that word, not in a cynical or doubting way, but rather in the most affirming way that you can possibly receive it. Like a father saying to his son, I am proud of you. This is God declaring that in Jesus Christ you belong to him. He has determined you for this not to obtain wrath, but to obtain salvation in his name. And friends, when this truth is held, and when it's received, when it becomes ours, it has the power to redirect and reorient our lives. William Plummer Jacobs was the pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Clinton, South Carolina. It's a very small town, and yes, it's pronounced Clennon, despite the presence of a T in it. While he was pastoring the church just after the Civil War, he had 10 orphaned boys who he started an orphanage for. These young men were trained in a classical style of education, and they were also taught the scriptures. A college was then opened, Presbyterian College, just across the street, to train these young men and then young women who later came, who were all orphans, orphans from the great disaster of the Civil War. But they were taught and they believed the gospel. And many of them went on to be pastors and teachers. And many went on to be missionaries. Some giving of themselves all the way to the Presbyterian mission in Brazil. And these orphans who were without family, without name, without any love, who were brought into the orphanage were transformed as they were taught. The very doctrines that we continue to believe today inside of our reformed tradition. And what change them what reoriented them friends it's truths like this these are not just abstract theological things that we simply get to think about they are life transforming changing realities god declaring that he is for you in jesus christ and he was before you before the found for you before the foundations of the world that is reorienting And it reorients those who are disoriented and those who are hopeless. That God is determined to be for us before time. The second piece to this, though, of God being for us that we find in 1 Thessalonians 5 is in verses 9 and 10. The second half of verse 9. And that is that God is for us in the actual accomplishment of our salvation. Follow what Paul says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. It's the very simple phrase, who died for us. And Paul is here speaking about the great events of Jesus' life in which he went to the cross, and then three days later, he was raised from the dead. And this is where Christianity stands out as unique amongst the religious systems of our world. While there are many impressive truths and many loyal adherents and followers of the different religious systems in our world, there is none that comes close to expressing salvation in the way that Christianity does Because you see, Christians do not locate salvation inside of what a human being does, or how they perform, or how well they master a praying technique. But rather, salvation happens because an event outside of you and outside of me. It is something that is done by someone else for you. And this is what Paul is proclaiming here. That God was for us in Jesus Christ, and that Jesus Christ died for us. He was so for us that he went into God's verdict that was against us. That God had a wrath that we had justly deserved because of our sins. And Jesus Christ entered inside of that wrath wrath, by entering into death. That is God's commitment to you. Is to cancel out his wrath. To cancel out his judgment. To cancel his verdict against you. Because another received it for you. This is how God is for us in the accomplishment of salvation, that he is not against us any longer because Christ has gone into our place. And we receive that deep, affirming word, just like the word that we received that we were determined for salvation. Now we know that salvation has been accomplished for us, that God sent his son to do so, and his son did so gladly in order to reconcile us to him. That he died the death we deserved, granting us his life in order to reconcile us to God. Now the final piece of this God being for us that we find here in First Thessalonians 5 is that God is for us also in the future of our salvation. If you follow in verse 10... He explains who died for us so that whether we are awake, that is, that means whether we are living, or whether we are asleep, that means whether we have died, we might live with him. And Paul here is picking up on language that he's used earlier in the book of Thessalonians. If you turn back with me to chapter 4 in verses 13 through 18. Paul here is engaging because there was a controversy about the resurrection and how events would play when Jesus returned. Verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That is referring to those who have died. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, Now, many people find these words to be some of the most confusing in all of Scripture. And many people will ask the question when they hear this. They say, Chuck, you speak of Jesus returning and making a new heavens and earth. And Paul here is speaking about being on a cloud forever. How does that reconcile itself? And friends, it's important for us to get clear because Paul was having to address issues around the resurrection and the return of Jesus, the second advent of Jesus. And so what he develops is this notion that, yes, the dead, they are with the Lord, and that one day in the future, their bodies will be raised, and the dead will be raised first. And then those who are alive will be caught up, he says, and go up into a cloud and greet the Lord, meet the Lord. Now, the image here is a very provocative one and very powerful in the ancient world, particularly in the Roman, the Greco Roman context, when a king returned to his royal dominion to a city, the people would normally go out to greet him. It's very similar to what happens on Palm Sunday with Jesus, with the crowds coming out to him as he's riding on the donkey into the city. And so a royal procession was had, and that royal procession was welcoming the king into his royal dominion and domain. And so when we find this image of the church being caught up in the cloud, it's not so that you go and be with the Lord forever in the cloud. Do you see the royal procession that is an image here? That we are going up to welcome the Lord Jesus to his dominion, a new heavens and new earth that's free from sin's stain, free from sin's pollution, free from death, free from all corruption, free from divided hearts, free from unfaithfulness. That is what we look forward to, and that is what Paul announces, that God is for us in the future, that while salvation is a current possession, there is a distinctive and final element to it, that when Christ returns, he will make all things right, and we will welcome our returning king, welcome him to his dominion, and he will destroy sin, and he will destroy death, and he will trample it underfoot. Friends, this is the definition of God being for you. That He is this utterly committed to you. That the plans that He made in His eternal counsel, then that He accomplished and effected in the death and resurrection of Jesus, He will carry out into the future. That you'll never be forsaken. You'll never be left behind. You'll never be found helpless. That his promises are strong and they're true and they're good. They don't fail you. They don't forsake you. They don't come and go. That this determination of God is strong and will run all the way until God makes everything right. And the most significant question that we can ask is that if this is God for us, if he is for us in this way, then what does it mean? What does it mean for you? What does it mean for me today? And there is only one conclusion that we can draw, that we are to be for him. That if God is for us in this way, in this indissoluble, unbreakable bond, that we are his in Christ, eternally determined to be this, those who he has effected salvation for, those who he has a future salvation and deliverance for, then we are to be for him. And if you follow the argument in chapter 5, this is how Paul actually uses this. Verse 9 continues what was happening in verses uh, 6 and and 8. He says, So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober, And he uses two metaphors here of being awake and being sober. That is, being those who are alert to Jesus Christ and following after him. And then in verse 8, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Let us be strengthened and follow after Jesus. In faith, in love, and in hope is what he says. And friends, this is the only response. As those who have been set apart as those who know that God is for us in Jesus Christ and those who know that there is a future in which God will make all things right. That we are simply to respond by giving ourselves fully to him because wholly, utterly, and completely he has given himself to us all the way from before the foundations of the world and all the way into eternity future. That is how committed that he's been. And friends, when we receive that affirming word, when that word comes to us, that I am for you, it is not the part of humility to then turn and say, no, you don't really know me, I'm not worthy of you, and if you really got it, you wouldn't ever say that to me. But yet that's how many people orient to God. They think that they would never be deserving. And friends, when we respond to God in that way, when he comes to us and speaks this word, that he is for us in Jesus Christ, we cannot respond with this faux humility. The only response that we can give is that of grace and gratitude and thankfulness. To say thank you to God and to humble ourselves before him. That to reject these words of God being for us is the height of unbelief. It is the height of pride. It is not humility at all. And so let's do that. As we drill down during the Advent season and ask what does it mean for God to be for us. Let's be a church that listens and receives There we go, God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation. A salvation that he's accomplished for us in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And a salvation that's sure in the future. And let that then give shape to our present. And may we encourage one another, emboldening one another, strengthening one another with those words. Those are the words that you need. And they come from God himself. He's for you. Believe it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great gospel message that resounds here in this passage and throughout the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments that you are for us and that you are accomplishing your great eternal plans of salvation. And while there are great mysteries in these things, we ask that we would hear affirming words, comforting words, reorienting words, and would we fully give ourselves to you because of all that you are for us in Jesus Christ and all that you have bound up for us in the future. Lord, we ask that you would come and give us comfort, especially in the midst of our grief, and may we grieve but may we grieve as those who are not without hope. We pray for the family of Irene Schultz, and we ask God that you would give them comfort, that you would direct them to your son, that they would find him to be good and true, and his word to be sure and steadfast. Would they share in the faith of their dear mother, our sister, Irene Schultz, and would they know that death has not a final word, but our Lord Jesus will return, and will welcome him to his dominion and to his reign and lord so comfort this family grant us peace in all of our grief we pray in christ's name and for his sake amen